Hello, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History here. Back by popular demand, we've got Lewis Dartnell. Lewis Dartnell is on the podcast. Now, Lewis Dartnell's the kind of guy who you meet and wonder what the hell you've been doing with your life. He is not only a professor of science and communication at the University of Westminster, but he's a popular science writer. He's written The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch, which, when I first read it, seemed like a fun thought experiment, and now, in these interesting times, feels like an essential instruction manual. Uh, he goes through all the essential, foundational, scientific underpinnings of our society and explains how you can sort of fast-track it if you find yourself in a state of nature without any utilities, without industrial farming, without anything you need, without medicine. All you do is read that book, break the glass, take the book out of the cabinet, put it in your grab bag. More recently, he has written the best-selling and, and fantastically interesting origins about how the earth made us, about how the geology, the rocks and uh, minerals beneath our feet have shaped the course of our history, some, most of the time, without us knowing it. He came back on the pod because we can't get enough of Lewis Darnell, and we chatted about how many of the things we see around us, many, much of our politics, our culture, the way we vote, is determined by what goes on beneath our feet or in the air around us and above us. It was super interesting, super interesting. Listen, I hope everyone's finding this period of lockdown wherever you are in the world. I hope you're finding it tenable. It's difficult being at home with the kids. It is difficult trying to work. I'm finding it difficult. I'm worried about the world. I'm worried about my family or about my communities. It's difficult to maintain your mental health and your physical health. Wash your hands, cough into your elbow, isolate if you have symptoms, and then look out for what you can do in the community. I'm hugely privileged to have been able to offer my apartment in London, which is now empty, to frontline healthcare workers. I'm so happy to think it's, it's going to be used and not sat empty. So please don't underestimate what is within your network, what is within your power to do. We're going to go through some things together, everyone. I'm going to do what I can to help with education, entertainment, information at this time. We're going to up the output of podcasts. We are trying to keep the flow of films going to History Hit TV. We've got historians, fantastic historians, are uploading video for us all the time from the security of their own homes. So thank you to all of them, people like Alice Roberts, for reaching out and getting in touch. It means a huge amount. Watch over the next few days and weeks on our social media platforms on historyhit.tv, which, as always, you can get absolutely free. Uh, you can go and use the code POD3, POD3. You get a month for free, and then you get three months for just one pound, euro, or dollar for each of those three months. And frankly, who knows where we're going to be in four months' time, everyone. So that doesn't sound like a bad trade. You can uh, watch the World's Best History Channel for four months for just three pounds, euros, or dollars by using the code POD3HistoryHitTV. I'm also going to be thinking about some kind of book club idea. I'm going to be talking to Greg Jenner next week, and we will find out a way to stream that live. I'll let you know on the podcast as we work on the technology, but the best way is stream that live so you can all join in our conversation. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy the excellent Lewis Dartnell. Dude, good to have you back on the show. <laughs> Hello again, Dan. Yeah. It's been good to see you. You've been doing well? I've been doing all right. I've been doing all right. You know, sort of, you know, pandemic-adjusted terms. I'm doing all right. Yeah. Um, what uh, What I want to, I, since I lost, so I've read, now gone back and read your back catalogue, so I'm even more excited to see you again. <laughs> um, I just love, I think we can have a, more of a conversation about some of the things that you identify in your work that are shaping the world today, as we all know it, down yeah. to things like, you know, the next US... Uh, election for sounds example. good yeah but let's start um let's start with the mediterranean because i'm just sort of i love the sea and i love the effect it's had on us and you've got some you make a very interesting point about that great inland ocean mm. yeah so 
one of the points I'm making in, in Origins is these deep links between features of the planet and the grand themes and trends of, of human history. And one of the things that we all learn about at school is about the Mediterranean being this bubbling cauldron of cultures and societies and civilizations. And we learn, of course, about the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, but also about the Phoenicians and the Minoans and the Etruscans. And when you think about it, all of this activity over hundreds and thousands of years around the Mediterranean has been mostly around the northern shorelines of this oval, elliptical-shaped inland sea. It's not smeared evenly around the lips of this sea. And the two sides, the north and south coastline of the Mediterranean, are like really very close to each other, a couple hundred miles, which is nothing in, in kind of nautical sailing terms. So there's something of a mystery in history, if you, if you, if you see what I mean. Why is there this, this distribution, this, this pattern between north and south? And the answer to this becomes really clear when you look back in Earth's history and where the Mediterranean was formed from in the first place. And so hundreds of millions of years ago, all of Earth's continents were crammed together into a single, giant, single continent, Pangaea, the, the all land. And as this supercontinent began to fragment and break up, a huge ocean, which was called the Tethys, uh, gradually became swallowed up and destroyed as first uh, Africa began riding north and also India broke off and began riding north to then recollide back into Eurasia. And as Africa rode north to recollide back into Eurasia, it swallowed up the Tethys Sea that was kind of getting in its way. And all that remains now of this once vast ocean is basically a puddle, a remnant of the Tethys, which is what we call Mediterranean today. And this fact that it has been Africa riding north into Asia and importantly, it's been Africa that's being subducted beneath uh, Europe, means that the northern coastline of the Mediterranean has been crumpled up into this great big linked chain of hills and mountains, which have then become submerged with the rising of sea levels after the last ice age. So it's become a drowned landscape. The northern Med is full of hundreds of, of islands and archipelagos and inlets and bays and coves and natural harbours. The North Med is ideally set up, in just a pure geographical sense, ideally set up for seafaring societies, for moving things around and trading when going over land is much harder for, for most of history. Whereas if you look at the other coastline, the African coastline, and literally just look at a map or just imagine your head, it's pretty flat. It's almost ruler straight because the land is being subducted and swallowed into the depths, into the interior of the earth. And pretty much the only exceptions to this general rule for thousands of years of history through the Bronze Age and then the kind of uh, classical era through the Middle Ages have been the civilization of ancient Rome, sorry, the, the civilization of ancient Egypt, which effectively huddles along this linear oasis of the River Nile through the, the Sahara Desert and Carthage, which came to oppose even the might of the Romans until they were utterly destroyed and then the wars and pretty much wiped off the and, face of the map. And now that you're mentioning it, Carthage is the only kind of little natural harbour that you it's think of. the only natural coast, harbour yeah. you can find in a thousand miles along North African coastline. So naturally, as a seafaring trading nation, uh, state, that's where they established themselves. And so for thousands of years, there's been this sharp disparity distinction 
between two sides of the, the Mediterranean Ocean. And that all comes down to earth movements and, and plate tectonics. See, this is why I love you, dude. This is so cool. <laughs> Does that also mean the process of crunching up on that northern coast, is that what also has produced sort of nice deposits of different minerals and metals? And is that, is that the process of being smunched up? <laughs> smunched. I'm going to put that into the well, next you book. Footnote it, but so I, I, f I fitted the word clunch into my book as one of my innuendo bingo words in Origins. There, there was clunch. Um, so yeah, so the, the closing of the Tethys Ocean and the creation of the Mediterranean as a puddle uh, crumpled up uh, clearly the Alps along the, the southern margin of Europe. But it also crumpled up ripples much across northern Europe. And we f still feel those ripples of the collision of Africa into, into Europe as far north as, as Britain and London. So the, the London, Downs. the South Downs, and, and the rippling of, of the Cretaceous, that chalky landscape. And specifically with London, the lower Thames Valley is running along one of the kind of down dips, this great rippling of the Earth's surface, which has been filled in with a huge amount of clay during an earlier period of, of Earth's history when the sea levels lapped up and deposited lots of, of seafloor mud in what would become the, the Thames Basin. And so one of the key facts about London is that London is an awful place for trying to build skyscrapers. You're trying to, to build on mud. You have to build incredibly deep foundations for skyscrapers like the Shard and the Canary Wharf. But London, on the other hand, because of that, is ideally set up for tunnelling for the oldest tube network in the world, and now still one of the most extensive tube networks. Whereas New York and Manhattan is the opposite. New York has got rippling of rocks, which give you foundations for towering skyscrapers uh, in lower Manhattan and also in Midtown. So in New York, the distribution of skyscrapers perfectly mirrors the geology below, below the ground that's invisible. But, but London is, is, a, is, a, is an expression of the rippling of the Alps and the collision of Africa. Um, but did that colliding effect, um, uh, see I'm too stupid, but did, did the precious metals, like, were they, uh, or, or useful metals, are they laid down before that, or are they, are they, does, the, does the process of clunching uh, <laughs> mean that's why you hear about um, Greek and Etruscan and, uh, and Spanish access to those kind of key metals in that? So copper is yeah. a key metal. Copper is laid down uh, right on the bottom of the sea floor around hydrothermal. So there's a lot of copper being laid down right now in the middle of the Atlantic, in the mid-Atlantic ridge, as the, as the ocean itself is still spreading. Don't tell the man that. Okay, <laughs> so people out. are starting to talk about deep sea mining. Oh, great. But during the Bronze Age, they, without really understanding what was going on, found you could get access to deposits of, of copper, even though it was laid down right on the bottom of the seafloor, because with the destruction of the Tethys and that ancient ocean being swallowed up with Africa riding north, a scoop, literally like a kind of ice cream scoop dollop of ancient ocean crust was picked up and slapped right back down into the middle of Cyprus. And Cyprus and the Trudos Mountain in the middle of Cyprus is a dollop of ancient oceanic crust with really rich copper ore deposits. Right. And the Minoans realised well, they could walk up the side of this hill, mine into the side of it, get incredibly rich copper, which they mixed with tin, from Cornwall, Boom. and the granite deposits there, and that was the the raw materials of thousands of years of the Bronze Age, with, uh, with this tectonic earth movement that made it available to us. And kind of, once you mix tin and copper together, you're on the moon in about 5,000 years. It's incredibly I mean, quickly, it exactly. it like you were, we're anatomically modern humans for hundreds, 200,000 years or something? Or? Give or take, exactly. Yeah. And, then, and then the dudes discover the piece of crust, the ice cream scoop, <laughs> and then, you know, Apollo 11. 
Well, when you look at the, the long, order. it really is, and it's been accelerating, getting quicker and quicker. So three million years of Stone Age technology, of picking up bits of rock and bashing them against each other for the Bronze Age a few thousand years ago, uh, the Iron Age about a thousand years ago, and nowadays it's steel, aluminium, uh, tungsten, aluminium, all of these technological metals, but we're getting faster and faster and faster. And you're right, to have gone from digging up uh, the raw materials of the Bronze Age and landing on the moon, has been incredibly uh, quick turnaround. So Providence handed those northern Mediterraneans, I mean that's why it all begins there, so they've got the natural materials, they've got the harbours, they've got it all going on. Yeah, the, the geography has provided for them what is needed for building flourishing civilizations. And they've, in, in thinking about it, you've probably got enough useful geography for trade and communication, but a bit for defence as well, so it's that kind of quite nice, quite nice mix. So it doesn't, so, so in the same way that those societies benefited enormously and, and went on to become hegemonic, who's got the good stuff today? Like, what, what's the equivalent? <laughs> so, in a sense, we are still very much in the Iron Age. Things have moved on in terms of the number of different metals we've been using since ancient Rome, but we still mine and produce more iron and steel than any other metal. But with the modern world, with our industrial chemistry, and making things like artificial fertilizers and the kind of chemistry and the catalysts need for that, but also in particular for all the electronics that we use. So if I were to ask you, Dan, how many metals, different kinds of metallic elements, do you think you have on your person right now? You might have a bit of copper, maybe some steel, maybe a bit of aluminium. I'm a man of steel. Uh, <laughs> so I would, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've got five metallic elements on me. And I think that's a, a pretty okay. reasonable guess. You've probably got nearer 30, if not 40, different metals on your person right now if you have a, a smartphone in your pocket. And these are trace amounts of weird exotic metals that have special properties for electronics or the magnet and, and the vibration motor of your, of your buzzing vibration alarm for your phone. And these are the rare earth elements. And it is true that in the modern world, 80% of global supply of these rare earth elements is coming out of China. And what we're seeing at the moment in the trade war between the US and China, two of the largest superpowers on the planet today, are having a bit of a tussle. Uh, China, if you'll excuse the pun, is literally holding the trump card. The states cannot afford for China to turn and say, okay guys, we've had enough of your tantrums, no more rare earth elements for you. We are cutting off your supply. They did something similar in a dispute with Japan a number of years ago. So it's not that China has the only deposits of rare earth elements around the world, but they are able to mine it economically at the moment because they're, they're smeared quite thinly around the Earth's crust, whereas we find rich deposits of iron concentrated in a particular place, or as we were talking about earlier, rich deposits of copper or tin for different geological reasons, dolloped and concentrated in one place. These rare earth elements are just smeared and averaged all over the world. There's nothing that's concentrated. So surface place. area is useful. So, so China being a large country is useful, but actually with these rare earth elements, we co-mine them. You mine rare earth elements with something else that has a market value, and you get the rare earth elements kind of along the side. That, that effectively cheapens their production. Um, what I like about your work as well is that, as a sailor, it's not just the stuff under our feet, but it's the stuff going on in our atmosphere, mm. because any student of maritime history knows that we just got blown around. You know, Christ <laughs> no, like, we literally Chris did. Yeah. yeah, Christopher Columbus, everyone's like, oh, it's amazing. I mean, I mean, it was an impressive maritime feat, but you do just put the sails up and get blown from <laughs> A to B. 
But the trick though, uh, as I'm sure you know, Dan, is you need to know where to be to pick up the wind true. blowing the right direction. Yeah, he almost, he almost spiked it into the doldrums. <laughs> true, but, yeah. So the, the doldrums are unavoidable. The doldrums are a, a, just a feature of the way the atmosphere circulates uh, above our planet, ab about the equator, where the raw, warm air is rising. Okay, so hang on, yeah, let's get So we've got the, the sun, boom. Energy from sun hits the earth, mostly at the fat bit. Mostly around the middle, around yeah. the midriff, around the equator. And then what's that do to weather? Uh, so around the equator, you tend to get warm air that rises, you know, just like the radiator in your, in your house, in your home. And that warm, moist air rises, cools down, and a lot of that moisture condenses. So around the equator is where we find all the rain, rainforests of the planet. That air then rolls over through high altitude and sinks back down again to the surface of the Earth at about 30 degrees north and south. That's dry, descending air from high altitude. That's where we find most of the deserts around the planet. Deserts and rainforests are just the atmosphere moving around. And then to get back to the equator where it started from, to complete that loop, the atmosphere blows across the surface, which is just what we call the winds. And the only other important fact in this global pattern is that the entire planet is turning beneath its atmosphere as the atmosphere churns. And this gives what's known as the Coriolis effect that deflects the winds to one direction. So either side of the equator, you have a broad band of winds that always, always blow towards the west. Those are the trade winds. And then outside the trade winds towards the poles, where the atmosphere is churning in the opposite direction, you get a wide band of winds that always, always blows towards the east. Those are the westerlies. So the critical realisation in the early days of age of sail, age of exploration, age of discovery from our European point of view, was you can map the winds and the ocean currents that are blown around by them in exactly the same way you would map landmark features on, on the ground, on, on the continents. And you can use these conveyor belts of winds as, as, like, a, as a, like a wind machine, and you just hop back and forth between different streams to blow you first one way across an ocean, and then bring you back again with a full load to, to sail. Uh, Which is why sail. the Portuguese discovered Brazil on the way to South Africa. Kind yeah. crazy. So the Portuguese were trying to clear around the bottom of Africa to get across the Indian Ocean to, to the source of the spices. And in order to get around the bottom of Africa, following the way the winds blow, you stumble across South America. The reason that Brazil speaks Portuguese, whereas the whole rest of uh, South America speaks Spanish, is simply that is the way the wind blows. We talked in our last conversation, the reason that California was so geopolitically crucial for hundreds of years, is that is the only place the winds will deliver you to once you crossed the Pacific Ocean from China. That's, that's just where you arrive. That's where you have to put your cities and your ports to, to resupply. Um, arguably, that the greatest influence for subsequent playing out of history was the North Atlantic Trade Triangle. And this was established in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, when the British and then rest of, of North Europe had worked out how to get machines to make stuff for us. How do we mass produce really cheaply things like clothes and textiles and weapons. And we then sailed those manufactured, machine-made things down the old Portuguese route to the bulge of Northwest Africa, sold our manufactured goods and loaded up our ships with human labour, with, with slaves. People were abducted, thrown into chains, taken across the trade winds passage to the colonies in North America where they're forced to work on plantations, growing raw plant products. So tea, coffee, sugar, um, cotton. And then those raw plant products were taken across the westerly band 
back to Britain, North Europe, where we used our machines to transform that raw plant material into useful things, turning cotton fibres into clothing and textiles, which we then took back down the Portuguese route to North Africa and so on and so on. So this North Atlantic trade triangle is, is like a huge economic cog sat right across the ocean, being blown round and round by atmospheric circulation, but generating huge profits for its masters, for, for those slave masters. And, and we see these fingerprints of atmospheric circulation even in the, in the global map today, about where major cities were founded and where trade routes and, and this whole pattern of European expansion and colonialism and empire building was dictated by where you have to put your fortresses and your ports, which was dictated where you establish your long-range transoceanic trade routes, which was dictated by where the winds blow. There, there's this direct correlation between the two. I find it amazing like when you look at older cities, like um, your Cape Towns and your Singapore, well, the, the 100 years old, which are about sort of established by European imperialists as they, and traders. Well, I find, and I kind of find it amazing about modern cities. I mean, like Vegas, I love going to Vegas. It has and go, no right. It has no right to be there. It's this amazing that you know, unlike London is there because of this, you know, it's it's uh, well, a port. It's, it's on the port. mouth of the big it's river. It's the widest point that you can still bridge the river. The London Romans, and same as St Petersburg, wherever. But like, and then, but some of these modern Chinese, or when they just go, we are now we're in a different paradigm here. We're just going to build insanely inappropriate place and, and pour more concrete in a year than has been poured in yeah. human history up to that. It's, it's phenomenal what China is achieving. But actually, do you know why Las Vegas is where it is? Sunny. It's sunny, but importantly, it's just over the state border oh, from so California. Yeah. So you can gamble. So the state laws were different. And um, Nevada, the state, uh, realized it had a problem. So California is on one side of the mountain range. The moist winds blown from the ocean get pushed up, rain. So California, you can grow stuff. You can have agriculture and feed yourself. It was also benefiting from the geological bounty of that same mountain range providing gold. Yeah. Nevada, other side of the mountains, no rain. It's in a rain shadow. It's desert. And the only way it could find support itself was effectively taxing California by inviting, enticing people from California just over the state border into its gambling halls and casinos and effectively so, getting... So you're right. It still is connected. <laughs> it is connected with, with, our, with our deeper geological mm. past. Um, let's, speaking of uh, speaking Nevada, which is swing state, very exciting swing state in the November election. Um, what, I mean, this is, come on, you're on shaky ground here when you try and say <laughs> that all this deep history can affect, you know, the outcome of Brexit or, or the presidential election, aren't you? Or maybe not. Convince me. So, um, one of my favourite stories from the whole of Origins, when I was researching and writing this book, were these astonishing links between the planetary and the political. How even the rocks beneath your feet uh, seem to influence how people choose to vote in elections, what leader they want. And I show in the book um, the election map from the most recent presidential election in the US, and particularly in these southern states. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the southern states of the US are mostly Republicans, a big sea of red. But there are some Democrat voting counties, and they're not scattered randomly across the map. You notice there is structure, there is a pattern where people have voted Democrat. They voted for Hillary Clinton rather than Donald Trump. And if you see a structure. And the structure, the, the pattern you see is this distinctive, very conspicuous crescent arcing its way across the southern states. And that doesn't correspond to anything 
on the ground. There are Democrat voting counties either side of the Mississippi River, but this crescent doesn't correspond to a mountain range or to hills or anything you can actually see in the landscape. And it only becomes apparent when you look at the rocks underground, and particularly rocks which are 80 million years old, Cretaceous age rocks. And there is a stark correlation between rocks beneath your feet that just happen to be 80 million years old and people voting Democrat. This makes no sense, right, Dan? Like, these people are not geologists. They're not digging in their back garden, or indeed their backyard, and going, ah, oh, my back garden, the rocks here, they're 100 million years old. I've got to vote for Trump now. I wanted to be a liberal. I wanted to vote for Hillary, but now I've got to be a Republican. But what, what is happening is there, is there is this long chain of cause and effect of one thing leading to the next, reaching back through hundreds of millions of years of planetary history and the recent centuries of our history. And the rocks laid down 80 million years ago during the Cretaceous, when Earth's sea levels were much, much higher than they are today, were basically seafloor mud. The ocean lapped up right through the middle of North America. And the rocks, those rocks, 80 million year old rocks, have been re-exposed by erosion now along that particular crescent. And it was realized in the early 1800s that that seafloor derived rock gives you a soil which is exquisitely thick and black and fertile for growing cash crops like cotton, things you could sell back to Britain and get hard currency, get tools that you need uh, in the early days of the colonies. And unfortunately, that period of history, that meant slave labor, as, as we've already mentioned. And even today, even after hundreds of years, after the Civil War and after emancipation from slavery and after the Civil Rights Movement, still today the greatest concentration of black African-Americans live along that band of Cretaceous age rocks, people that unfortunately still today suffer from socioeconomic issues of poor opportunity, poor salaries, poor health care, people that are therefore much more likely to vote for Democrat politics and not Republican. And in fact, also on that map in Origins in the book, I show you a city called Montgomery. And Montgomery is the place where in the mid-1950s, a woman called Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white gentleman on the bus. The entire epicenter of the entire civil rights movement, which revolutionized society across uh, the US, began smack in the middle of that band of Cretaceous age rocks. That there is beneath those kind of proximate causes of politics and culture and sociology and economics, beneath that there's the bedrock of what the earth has provided, of the landscape of the geology. Okay, let's look at the problem. We've done, we've done um, rare metals. What are the you know, given that now there's, or is there, uh, less the, the, the decreasing importance of agriculture in, in the way that we do mm. things, or of iron, arguably, like, what are the things today that you think, which have deep, deep causes like that, but which are, which are fundamental to understanding our world? Um, so we've talked a lot about raw materials in terms of metals and making tools and, and technology out of that, but the other thing you need to drive a society, to provide for society, is energy. And clearly today, we are a carbon fueled, a fossil fueled society, civilization. And as we all know, that is having some unintended consequences in terms of releasing too much CO2 in the atmosphere and pushing the chemistry of the entire atmosphere, of, of warming up the planet with, with climate change. And in a sense, what we're experiencing right now are the unintended consequences to our civilization solution to a previous problem, which was running out of energy in the uh, 1500s and then into the 1600s, 
we, we were a timber-fueled economy back then. We, we grew trees for making our sailing ships and for burning to, to bake bread, to make bricks, to build things with, to, to brew beer. Any chemistry, any function of society where you need heat and warmth, you burnt a tree for that. And we were basically running out of trees. And we coppiced and, and, and allowed trees to grow back more quickly, but we were fundamentally hitting a limit on what our civilization could do because of the energy supply until we realized we could dig underground and mine ancient buried forests, the coal seams of, of Britain. And those coal seams were provided by another quirky chapter of our planet's history, the Carboniferous, uh, around 300, 320 million years ago, when something broke on planet Earth. Our planet's recycling system shut down and trees grew really vigorously in the climate back then. They, they died, they fell over, but then refused to rot. For millions of years, tree, trees just refused to rot and build up these thick seams of coal, which we started digging up. And with the crude oil, we're effectively mining another chapter in our planet's history when the recycling system of the oceans, not the continents, the oceans recycling system shut down and plankton in the oceans grew vigorously, died, would not rot on the seafloor and built up shale, which then became crude oil. So we're effectively cashing in on this bank, this reservoir of fossilised energy, which has been a wonderful opportunity. It, it industrialised us, it, it drove us into our modern technological world, but we now have to find a way to turn our backs and decarbonise our economy again for all the ways that, that, that are now clear. And the wind and the sun are going to be critical? Exactly. So we're going to have to go back to, in a sense more primitive technologies that we were using before coal and oil anyway, a windmill, not for grinding millstones past each other to turn wheat grain into flour, into bread for us to eat, but instead building wind turbines, which do the same thing. They're more refined, they're more efficient, but we're now going to make electricity with them rather, rather than making flour and bread. Or a water wheel, we've now effectively reinvented as the hydroelectric turbine, which is phenomenally more efficient, but the same basic principle. Um, and clearly with coppicing, with, with growing crops and growing forests, we're harvesting sunlight, which we can do again with technology, with ultra pure silicon, with a, a solar panel. But what our scientists are trying to solve right now is, can we even cut out the middle man, cut out the sunlight and generate nuclear fusion on the surface of the earth itself? So if we harness the sun's own power source in little reactors on the earth, and, and generate, provide for our society by using nuclear fusion. Um, and slightly the frustrating thing for that is that many of our problems will be solved once we've cracked nuclear fusion. It's, it's effectively emissionless once you've got it up and running. And unlike nuclear fission and using uranium plutonium, um, it doesn't leave lots of radioactive waste afterwards. It's much cleaner in that sense. And the joke has been uh, nuclear fusion is about 15 years away and has been for the last 15 years, the last 30 years. And that just means we've not invested in it properly. I mean, this is one of the problems of, of modern society. We need to convince our politicians to put the money where their mouths are and start investing in, in things that will you know, take the next step. said it before, say it again on this <laughs> podcast, the amount of money we invested in you know, fighter technology in the Second World War or in nuclear um, fission... Mm. And you just think, we could do fusion, couldn't we? I mean, 
Oh, we're, we're pretty much there in terms of understanding yeah. the basic process. It's now an engineering problem, not a fundamental physics. And a lesson problem. from the last 200 years of history is if you've got an engineering problem, you've got enough money, you can solve it. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of time, it's a matter of investment, yeah. it's a matter of, of having the will to do it. And we did that with, the, as you mentioned already, um, landing humans on the moon. But this is a moonshot project, this is a pyramid project. Um, this is a cathedral project from the kind of mid, 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 middle ages. Um, we've just not bothered really doing it yet. <laughs> Very annoying. Um, I loved your other book, by the way, which, as I said, I've just gone back and, and read. Um, and it was weird. it's called The Knowledge, and it's about, for everyone listening, it's just about if, we had to, if you uh, found yourself alone on the earth, how could you get human society? <laughs> which actually, you know, you and I might be working on a project together, thinking about that in a really broad sense. But watch this space. But um, I often get asked when I'm at a talk, particularly like in kids and going to schools, they're obsessed with the idea of one invention that could have short-circuited millennium of human development like if what's the one thing you I mean this is, you know this is a um, I'm sure a stupid question for you but what is the what is it kind of a, a thing that you that would have been transformative if you'd taken about like antibiotics or mm -hmm. whatever it might be what's your answer I'm gonna steal your answer and tell <laughs> the kids next time yeah so that the knowledge is all about how you could as a thought experiment how could you reboot civilization from scratch after uh, some kind of apocalypse some kind of reset event ie what have been the most important knowledge and inventions and technology through our history that you would want to leapfrog back to a second time around and accelerate redevelopment. How was our modern world built? And you could frame this as a, as a fun thought experiment. What single thing could you whisper in someone's ear at some particular period of history when you've jumped back in a time machine that they would instantly get and know what to do with and would have everything else around them that they could actually um, exploit that understanding to then change the subsequent development in a really profound way. Is it the expanding properties of heated water? Uh, so the steam engine has been phenomenally useful. But and could indeed, you have given that? To, could you have told the Romans? Could they have built a steam engine? I would argue probably not, because that concept that hot water expands in steam and gives you a, a, a force which you can harness also requires, as we've just mentioned already engineering solutions to properly harness that power. Yeah. So, so you actually need a lot of um, tool-making skill in making a cylinder for your steam engine, which derived in our history from basically the barrels of, of guns and artillery and, and ship um, warfare, um, that is precise enough that you can have a piston that smoothly moves up inside it. So it there, are, there are difficult problems there. Okay. So I would argue that the Romans were exquisite glass makers. They made perfectly transparent clear glass for bottles and for, for, for vases and they noticed that some of those vases if you look through them with, with water in them they make things behind them bigger. Oh. They've got everything in this concept about the lens for magnifying light, for focusing light except understanding how you can mould glass into a particular lens shape to then construct for example a microscope from it. So imagine how much history would have changed if we'd whispered in a Roman's ear, in Seneca's ear, this is the key to moulding glass, which you can do very well into a particular shape to give you a lens, put two lenses side by side, you've got a telescope, you've got a microscope, you now understand about germs. You now understand there are things which are so small, you can't see them, but they get in your body and they make you sick. That is the root of germs and diseases and pandemics. Um, and imagine how much that could have changed history if you know, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, we'd had modern germ theory, which took us into the 1850s to actually hit upon. 
I'm going to cut that out of the podcast and then that can be my answer now. And people are like, <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, uh, what is the, what's the latest project? How can people follow what you're up to? Uh, yes, yeah, so we're trying to get um, TV stuff up and running about both origins and the knowledge. And my publishers are getting quite keen on me writing the next book. So Origins was, it was a Sunday Times top history book of the year, which I was enormously excited slash smug about because I'm a scientist. I've written what so some people perceived as, as an interesting history so book. So annoying. So the next book is going to be another broad brushstroke interdisciplinary uh, interdisciplinary book looking at kind of aspects of, of human history and our technologies and, and our biology, us, us as animals. Cool. And everyone can follow you on Twitter? Which? Follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm Lewis underscore Dartnell. And I'm easy to find on Google as well. Just such my name. I'm lucky that Lewis and Dartnell are both <laughs> uncommon it's, names. It's what I expect from you. <laughs> the deep past having a very huge benefit in the present. There you go. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks again, Dan. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you.